everybody, and welcome to episode three of the third season of Backport Stories with Chuck Stead. So glad that you're here with us. Looking forward to another great story. Chuck, what are we going to talk about this week? Everything can be something else. Everything can be something else. All right, I want to find out what's behind that. Ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, here's Chuck Stead. Thanks, Joe. No one noticed when the world got bigger. Not at first, anyway. Spider knew it could happen. Being a web builder, Spider was familiar with the things connecting this way, but the world itself was still bigger than Spider knew it to be. Fox, who walks many miles in search of food, believed that the world continued beyond his tracks, but he followed the sense back to his lair and kept to what he knew. Lynx inched out beyond his territory, most every day by just a short bit, but like Fox, he followed the signs he knew. Caribou traveled hundreds of miles as wind called to her so that her child could eat. Still, she returned to the place of beginning. Those that fly, hawk, eagle, goose, heron, and all the others, they followed the whisper of their mother over the land, new to them. But when son stole back his place, they too returned to what they knew. So it was with all creatures until the world got bigger. It is not that animal people no longer desired the familiar. No, no, despite their restless moving about, like the rest of the animals, they sought a warm little nest or a burrow or a split ranch. The biggering of the world happened even to those who seldom traveled. The world got bigger, even if one stood perfectly still. To know this, we, well, we all gathered at the house of Abel Skeeter, an elder of great wisdom. He lived in an old school bus that had long since lost its wheels and sat flat on the ground. Inside, most of the seats were torn out and replaced with some wooden boxes that he used for furniture. There was a Coleman kerosene stove vented out the window with tin flashing screwed all in and around it. A couple of bus seats served as his bed with an ancient woolen bedroll pocked with moth holes for a blanket. He kept a junkyard dog that seldom did anything but fart. Although the dog used to have another name, Abel called it Farty. We kids, we managed to find places to sit among the collected debris of his front yard. Abel told us that the world had gotten bigger. He studied our faces with his arms folded across his dusty chest, his chin dropped down to his collarbone, and he explained how the world did this. First of all, he told us, the world has always known change. The world, he said, is always becoming something else. Ricky Cramshaw, with that deep wooden voice of his and his crooked eyelashes, asked what sort of something was the world becoming. Old Abel told him that the sort of something the world was becoming was a thing that always moves within change. Change. Ricky dug into his pocket and retrieved 53 cents in change. He asked if that was enough. Abel shook his head and told him that the change was part of the different things in life and not money in his hand. Ricky pocketed his coins and sat on the ground. Cindy Maloney asked Abel how the world was getting bigger, but at the same time seemed much the same. Abel told us the story. As he talked, the late of day came. It was gradual, warm, close to the skin, rust-colored light. It slipped out of the sky. It painted over our faces. And all the wind was gone now, and the stillness that remained carried Abel's words around his school bus home, up from the dirt, 
down from the settled sun, and even Farty the dog seemed to be speaking the story that he told. Once everyone knew the world, or at least the world they needed to know. They came and they went about their business. They did whatever it is that they did, and they feared seldom entering anything else into their hearts. If you were to ask folks back then something that they didn't know, they'd, they'd likely not know it, or else there'd be some place they hadn't been to, and they'd likely not see it, or suggest some new thing, and they'd likely not accept it. You, you see, the first folks to live were much the same as the animal people. Everyone shared a kind of rhythm, uh, like a dance, and, and they all had a sense of what that part was, the dance. One day, then, some folks figured out a way to get a bigger piece of something that others didn't have. Abel looked at Ricky. He said, Pull that change out of your pocket, boy. Let me see it. Ricky did so, and Abel asked if he could hold it. It was a quarter, two dimes, a nickel, and three pennies. Abel shook it in his closed fist and then dropped it to the dirt. That's what done made the world bigger. Now, say you turn that 53 cents worth uh, of change in, into candy. That candy could have maybe come from some candy factory over in Pennsylvania. That, that's where they might make it. The paper wrapper might have come from a pulp mill in Oregon. Now, you don't gone to Oregon, but yes, you do somehow with that wrapper. And the sugar in that candy, that might have come from a plantation down in South America. So now you left this country with your pocket change and you traveled to another country. And you've done all that on 53 cents. But wait, 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 wait. Now, where the hell did you come up with that 53 cents anyway? Ricky told them that the, the 50 part came from two bags of Coca-Cola bottles because they were a nickel a bottle. And the three pennies came from the change he got from the last purchase of Bazooka Bubblegum. Well, now, you see, you've already been a big-time buyer of coca, and, and with keeping the bottle factory busy, you see, you employed them people, and with buying things, that gives you back some change, so you're already obliged to buy some more next time. You see, that's how the world got bigger, what with trading things from one place to another. That's how the world always gets bigger. But the funny thing about it is that it, it don't one minute get bigger, then you find out it got smaller. You buy in a bottle of pop here, keep somebody else working over there. He smiled. Skeeter was proud of his lesson, but we knew it wasn't over. Skeeter seldom told a story that finished up in a neat, and that's the moral of the thing sort of way. He looked at the sky. He shut his pink fleshy eyelids across the light of the sun. The big irregular knob in his throat moved up and down as he swallowed with his neck stretched full out. Without looking down, Skeeter continued to talk with his face drawn up to the sun, his eyes shut, warm. Preacher man tells the story of Adam and Eve, talking to a snake, eating an apple. The good Lord don't truck for them to eat that particular apple. Preacher man says that apple eaten downcast a whole caboodle of us into misery, offending for ourselves and having to go to work, but that ain't the gist of it. Skeeter dropped his head down until his chin touched into another part of his layered, whiskered flesh. See, what happened is, folks figured out how to turn them apples into pocket change. Once they'd done that, 
They could no longer know the truth of things. They could no longer hear the rhythm. They could no longer find their part in the dance. Hell, the animal people gave up on even talking to us after that. Well, gave up on talking to most of us anyway. I asked him what the truth of things was. Skeeter turned to me. I think he was disgusted by the question. Ain't you been listening to me? What is it I got to tell you? You, 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 you see that 53 cents there? Well, just as them bits of metal can, can mean candy or a newspaper or a coffee and a donut, everything can be something else. Don't you see that? Sure, them apples can be memory in your pocket, but they are something else too. Maybe they is a meal to you or to a worm or to a mule. There ain't no telling what else they is. It's the changeability of the thing that keeps it alive. Even when you kill it and eat it, it keeps right on changing down through you. And, and what don't change you drops out of the other end of you. And then it changes into something else. Because nothing ever dies. He rose to his feet. He coughed a series of long, dry, raspy sounds out of his chest. He finished this with some spitting business, the last of which clung to his chin like a string of airplane glue. He dug his good hand down into his trouser pocket. He retrieved a dozen or so wrapped penny candies. He dropped them on the ground for us. He said, When the world got bigger, it got smaller. Some folks seen the change as being big, others as being small. It's all the same, really. His voice trailed off to some faraway place. But we ignored this. We were tearing into some Northwestern pulp mill wrappers from the processed cane of South America. Very interesting. Very. <laughs> what a wise guy. What a wise man. Tell me more about Skeeter. Some of the wisest people I ever met when I was a kid were like bums. <laughs> like they'd rejected society, or maybe society rejected them. I don't know. But they were just characters. And yeah. Uh, he, he was hanging out in this school bus back of a, I forget the name of the junkyard, but it was up at the point up above Hilburn. It's an area we called the point. It was in the hamlet. And uh, a lot of cars and, and wrecks and stuff down the bank. My grandfather's station had been there a decade and a half before that. So we knew the different people. He'd actually, this guy, he'd actually uh, known my grandfather. And uh, he was sort of a remnant of the past. But I think when he was a kid, he was a remnant of the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some people are that way, but but to, to use the the fifty three cents so effectively in talking about how the world got bigger, then you know how it got smaller again. Very interesting. Very. And he thought, you know, when he told us stories, and and he was the only one. There were other folks, like there was a guy named Little Crow who did this a similar thing, and and my dad Walt occasionally would do something kind of similar. And, and Uncle Mal, you know, and uh, when these guys told us stories, they were often stories were way over our heads, but they were entertaining enough. Yeah. You know, they knew to tell entertaining things and they liked to entertain themselves, you know, like Mal was his best audience for himself. You know, he'd laugh at his own jokes and, and that kept you in there, but you were also getting exposed to this other stuff. I don't know how well, it, well, for me, it got in pretty well, but I don't know how well it gets into a lot of kids. But you grow with that. That becomes, they're like teachers. They, they're your teachers. Sure. Did he teach you? I mean, Scott was a, a camp counselor at the camp where you, 
you told these stories. Do you feel like he, you learned a lot from him in terms of the art of storytelling, the art of teaching through I, story? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think there's a, a, a person that I learned it from. I think it's more like Uncle Mal had a very strong influence because of the way he stepped in and out of his own characters and his stories. But also I think it's more an internal thing. You, it's, it's like some people are, they're born with a knack for hearing, you know, that that's what it is. And then can you take what you've heard and bring it to the, to the next place? And that's, it's, I remember when I was little, I would watch these movies, like the Laurel and Hardy movies. I'd watch them and I'd get them and I'd know the dialogue, but I'd watch them again to figure out how did they do this? How'd they get there? Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of times when Mal was talking and Mal and Walt's storytelling were very different from each other. And Tessie's was very different again. Her best stories, like I said, in a couple of weeks ago, were her gossip stories. But when she told them, she was always dropping in other hints and signals as to what this thread is really about. And I got really quiet. I was quiet a lot because I heard her tell this before, but now I'm hearing it a little different. And did the story change or did she change or have I changed? You know, I, I remember tracking that in my mind. Does it help to, when you engage, like when he, I'm saying this to Scott now, mm -hmm. when he engaged the, the kids at the camp, did that help them to then start asking him questions about the story and then did that help to to build the story and broaden it and its understanding i think the camp there there was a um there was an environment there it wasn't any one thing kind of the way you're saying it's hard to really tell who your influences are specifically whether it's musical influences or storytelling you are a mixture of everything you've experienced in every one so it's hard to tease that apart yeah but you do know when you're in the midst of something special and wonderful and that's that's what the camp was and certainly a huge part of that was was the story time even in the last years people were looking forward to fridays because that was when you got to hear the next part of the story and i use that in my own teaching also i'll tell stories that on the surface have nothing to do with whatever music we're learning or whatever, but those are the, the lessons in there are what the, the kids are talking about around the dinner table, not the, the music theory that I, I taught or something like that's concrete. There's something about the mystique of telling a story, and I think it, it goes back to our earliest times as, as creatures. I think we were social. We gathered around a fire where we protected ourselves and ate something and shared these even, you know, 10,000 years ago, they were ancient stories. So yep. it's something that's really very deeply connected to who we are as human beings. And I think the way you were sensitized, Chuck, to the different ways stories are told, like this story to me was very abstract compared to almost all of the other stories you've told in this podcast. And it was to a, a great effect. As you're starting, I was wondering, wait, we're, we're, we're talking an Indian lore story now? Or how does, how does, I can't wait to hear the dream you had about the lemur that's going to get you to, you know. But you tie it all together and it makes sense by the end. And that's, that's a great story. Because if you don't know, if you have these seemingly disparate 
pieces that somehow by the end you see the texture that they were all part of. That's that's the wonder of of a great story. What I liked at the camp, we did six weeks at the camp, and I, I, I did trips with them in the park and so forth, but every Friday I would return to do something. It's like base camp, it's Friday. And what I liked is I told a story that went for six episodes. What I didn't tell anybody was I wrote the first couple of episodes, and then as each week would happen, I'd go home, and depending on how the collective you know, over a couple of hundred kids, depending on how they interacted with me, because they did ask questions or talk with me. The next, it was a story I knew, but it leaned more heavily into the direction or the areas where they were really interested. And so I needed to, I needed those extra days to dwell on that a bit because, you know, they want to hear more from Cindy Maloney on that particular subject. So I leaned more heavily into Cindy or, or something. Or what does Tessie say when, when Walt comes back with a bear, you know, and then I lean more heavily into Tessie's reaction. And, uh, and that was good because that's, that's real storytelling is that the audience is also guiding the story. Yeah. And, uh, and at the camp, we did that for 33 years. So every summer I had a, an opportunity to re-engage and it was a little exhausting because it was emotionally exhausting because I'm dragging myself through this narrative thread that can be conflicted and bumpy along the way. But it was good because the kids' reaction pressed me in directions I might not have gone. You know, you, you don't tell a story in a room alone. You know, you're interacting. Yeah. Joe, don't you notice that when you're playing your dulcimer and you're playing it, doesn't the audience, even if it's just family or, or friends or the guys that you like to play with, doesn't that change the way you play a song? In a way, to some extent, it does. Yeah, the audience reaction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you have a sort of a set, 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 but a sort of set plan of how you think you do, you are going to do something that particular performance, and the audience could just turn it three hundred sixty-five degrees too. Absolutely. Yeah, I mentioned my friend Don Ellicker, who's a phenomenal guitar player. He also I know he's, he's an amazing guitar player. I've seen him play a couple of times. That yeah. Mike's oh, you oh, you have oh, great. Yeah, yeah he. He plays the guitar, he plays the violin, he plays the pedal steel, he plays the drums. He's one of he those. Plays a, he plays the guitar a lot. He plays his regular guitar on his lap as well. First time, couple of times I saw him, he was taking a regular guitar and just sitting it on his lap yep. and playing that one. Wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's quite talented. But I've seen him play, and if the audience is busy talking and they're having dinner at a restaurant or whatever, he delivers uh, what I call an honorable and excellent presentation, a show. Right. But if they turn in his direction and they connect with him, something magic happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. He just sets on, it lights him up. Yep. And he does things. And he starts to have a rapport with the audience. Yep. He starts to talk with them. And, you know, he's, as I said before, he's a very funny guy, a very interesting guy. And so he just turns everything, you know, turns everything up. And, and I know even from theater, you know, which is what I've always been involved in, you can do the same show five different nights and have five very different shows. Yeah, yeah. You so, know, because of the way the audience connects with well, you. Well, or, Joe said that he listened back to the, the podcast that we just dropped last Friday. It's the beginning of the Solstice story. And in texting with me, he said, I know I've heard that before. And he's right, because he also sent me some photographs of 
a solstice celebration that he was at at the salt box from 2014. And there I'm standing there with darker hair <laughs> and telling a story. Okay. And there's a student off to the side in one of the pictures. And I remembered that's when I told this story then, this solstice story, which was pretty exciting because you were talking to me about it. And I realized, yes, he heard it before. Here is where he heard it, but it was different. Different, longer, more detailed. Yep. Yes, it was. Yep. It was around the fireplace. <laughs> yep. It was a handful of us. Well, getting back to the camp really quickly. Yeah. Um, I was actually not a counselor at camp. I was lucky enough to be the photographer for the camp. So, which which meant I didn't have to be with any one particular group. I would float around, and for many Fridays, I would stay in Chuck's room because he would have the youngest kids in a session. Then the middle kids and oh, the yeah. oldest kids, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I would hear the same story adapted <laughs> for the age group. Wow. Talk about a pro! <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and huh? then you can see where the details get maybe a little darker, or you gloss over something for the younger kids. Yeah. So not only was Chuck taking time to retool what the story was going to consist of, but he actually differentiated by age what would be more um, appropriate or more uh, um, acceptable to, to uh, you know, under, understand yeah. what he's trying to say. Once in a while that would come back at me because there would be siblings, an older one and a younger one, <laughs> yeah. and they would go home and they'd start repeating the story to their mom, but the older one had this other version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, I always thought the audience, whatever the, the art form is, the audience is as much a part of it Oh. as as uh as the artist because it it really does uh change the way you again i go back to to Fiddler a lot you know there's this one very emotional part where his third daughter Kavala is uh she's doing something he simply cannot accommodate she's going to marry outside of the faith and it just it's breaking him and there were nights when the audience is like yeah, that's bad, you know, whatever. You, you can feel it. And then there were nights when it was really, I saw this one elderly Jewish man in the audience, and there was a tear in his eye. It's breaking his heart. Mm -hmm. And wow. it just took, that was it for me. I, I came apart too, you know. Uh, so he, that's what he gave the entire audience, his authentic and honest emotion transmitted to me, and then I was able to give it back uh, to the audience. But, he was the one who made the show yeah, that night. Yeah, he yeah. was the one. Yeah. You know, an yeah. interesting thing, too, I've played the movie of Fiddler to different classes over the years. Yeah. We talk about song form and how the, you tell a story and all this. And the movie, obviously, is identical. The presentation is exactly the same every time. But you change the classroom yeah. and the way they <laughs> receive it, and those moments play differently yeah now go figure out why that is <laughs> yeah well the, the audience gives to each other you know mm -hmm. i used to produce uh, big you know shows and events for corporate america meetings and i'll never forget richard jenny the late richard jenny who was a wonderful comedian kind of a tortured man but a wonderful oh, comedian yeah. and he, yeah. he when he came in he looked at the room right away you know this is what we're doing sound check he looked at the room and he said oh 
that's not going to work right over there. And I said, what's that? He said, well, the podium. It's on the corner of the stage. I said, yeah, it's, it, but it's way out of the way, Rich. It, it should be okay. Said, no, no. It breaks the sight line right over here. Breaks the sight line. These people will be affected by that. So yeah. I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. We were striking the, the, the podium. Then he'd look at it a little bit further, and um, he'd say, uh, show, me the, show me the light level in the room when I'm performing. Well, you know, it's going to be, you know, a little darker than this. And no, show it to me. I want to see what it looks like. So I said, okay. You know, and I went over to my lighting guy and I said, you know, give me, you know, the light setting for Richard's performance. He showed it to me. Not dark enough. Not dark enough. People have to have a license to laugh. If they are worried about whether the person next to them is laughing or not, they're, they might not laugh. They might not. They might feel uncomfortable if they hear that person laugh a little bit, but they don't see him. See him right, they'll be much right. more comfortable. They'll laugh. And by God, that guy knew how. Oh, to, he's right. That's true. He knew his yeah, audience. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing. You yeah. Know? I learned a lot from him, and and yeah. I always, you know, after that, I was very careful of the way the room sat, the way it was lit, what the performer was doing just before the show to make sure he he or she was happy and everything was working fine and everything because it really made a difference. So mm. true what you're saying about lighting, the little, little Elmwood Playhouse down in Nyack. It's such a small space. Uh, years back in the, in the 70s, I did a picnic there. I was a, a character in Picnic, and, and it was in the round. Bob Olson did a, a set in the round, which means the audience was fully lit on both sides in order for the set to be lit. It was a wonderful play to do, but that audience was afraid of reaction. Then some years later, I was in a production of, of a Death of a Salesman. And uh, we've got, of course, it's a different text. So you're looking at a whole different kind of writing. You're looking at Miller as opposed to William Inge. You know, sure. it's a whole other structure. But it was a straight up play. And we couldn't see the audience, nor could they clearly see each other. And there was such a, 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 another kind of ambiance that that play, Death of a Salesman, felt much, much more personal. And the pain of Willie Loman, which was performed, uh, Bob Frankel was the actor playing that part, was just so intimate. And and we couldn't capture any of that in the earlier thing when it was in the round because everybody was there. Everybody was in well lit. It was like a, a Midwestern, it was a great set, but it was a different ambiance. Yeah, yeah no, it makes yeah. a big difference. It really does. Last thing I, I can say to this, th there was a, a recent uh, production of Oklahoma which was a very harsh, brutal production which, where, where the director decided, let me tell the audience the way things really were back oh, <laughs> at that time. And somehow he was able to interweave you know, the, all the prejudices and the racism and everything yep. else into this beautiful music written by you know, Richard Rogers and everything else. And, and uh, uh, I, I will never... It, it was very unsettling, very unsettling, but he did the whole show... It was in the round, and the entire room was in bright light for wow. the entire wow. show. He wow. never brought the lights down. Wow. And so you were literally watching people wince. and, and uh, It was an experience. But it, it's an exhausting experience. It was. You can't come away from that fulfilled. Yeah. You come away from that tired. Oh, absolutely. You're <laughs> absolutely right. So, audience, just so that you know, as we leave you again this week... You are as important as the story. Your reactions, and, you know, we do hear from you from time to time. You're kind enough to, to write us notes about the story and the effect it had on you. It means a lot. 
it really truly means a lot to know how you're feeling and what you think of the story. And, or if you have a story of your own that you can share with us that uh, connects to the story we, that Chuck just told. So, uh, so let's keep the, uh, the cards and letters coming in. Let's keep yeah. the communication two way because that's what story is all about. Sure. Keep the thread alive. You bet. Well, thank you everybody. We'll see you next week with another back porch story. Thank you, Joe, out there in, in Garfield. In Garfield. We had a little flurries earlier. Oh, it's snowing. We're here together in the, for the first snow of the season. Yeah, yeah. That's We're recording. To, tell them the date. Uh, today's December 11th. We're actually recording yep. this story on. So, But That's it won't right. play until later in January. Well, it looks like we're yeah. going to have a white Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white, right? Yeah. <laughs> 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 All, right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Friday. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange. It's your hometown used bookstore located at 61A Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Folks, you're going to love the book exchange. This is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can enjoy a book read by readers a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margins giving you an insight as to what mattered most to that previous reader. That's how the Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their 20 for $20 book stacks or their intimate author readings and signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks, their monthly Zoom and in-person book auctions? and Handmade Montgomery. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade crafts and keepsakes. And how about getting store credits in the form of book bucks? Bring your well-loved or gently used books in for a store credit. Now, it's closed on Mondays, but it's open Tuesdays through Saturdays from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. and on Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. Want more information? Just go to MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. Now, there's one more thing. They even have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Now, my kids are all 30-something now, but I have four beautiful grandchildren, Jimmy, Sienna, Stella, and JJ, and I'm bringing all four of them down to the Children's Chapter. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Covered, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Children's Chapter is open Wednesdays through Saturdays. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. MontgomeryBookExchange.com, your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. listening to Backport Stories with Chuck Stett. The song that you hear at the beginning and the end of the episode is Flyer's Rag, composed by Mr. Scott Lewis. Our producer is Joe Serino, and our cover photography is done by Karen Serino. 
We'll be back with another episode each Friday morning, so please subscribe, click the like button, share with family and friends, and join us each week for another Back Porch Story.